Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. Phil Embrogno, I have a question for you. Somebody sent me a letter that said that the PowerCast devotes too much time talking about Roswell. Now, I have to tell you that we have not done much Roswell stuff in the last few weeks, except for a Scientologist who wrote a book purporting to be from a... Ner- I don't want to get into that. Anyway, but at the beginning of your book, very shortly after we start reading Interdimensional Universe, you have a section where you basically say that at first, you and the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek were kind of skeptical about Roswell, that a lot of the stuff was folklore, people's memories about things they might have seen when they were very young. Maybe those memories were amplified or exaggerated. And then you tell us about this letter you got from an engineer, and suddenly you start thinking again about Roswell. Could you tell us about that letter? Well, you know, um, I think that the chapter title is called Roswell, the story that won't fade away or something like that. You know, uh, I asked Alan Hynek about Roswell straight out. I mean, we were on the train going down to the city. And he looked at me with a kind of a look, and he said, you know, Roswell's like a, a story, a sore that won't go away, but just keeps on popping up over and over again. Alan Hynek was convinced it was a fairy tale that just got told and uh, was told over and over and over again and just got more incredible. You know, I have to listen to that and think about that. But, you know, I received a, uh, a letter from an engineer, and I went to go see him, and I talked to him a number of times before he passed away from lung cancer. During World War II, he had top-secret clearance. And actually, I knew him from despite his UFO. I heard of him because he was a, an electrical engineer, professor of engineering at MIT. Well, he would get called to go and examine technology, usually by World War II, just after World War II, of German technology, primarily rocking, rocket guiding systems and, and things like that. And he told me about a story in which uh, he was called to go and examine um, something he didn't know. But the person who usually picks him up was usually a military uh, sort of driver. But this person was in plain clothes and identified himself as, you know, so-and-so. And he could tell he was a G-man. And he was taken to an airport in the New York area. I think uh, an offshoot of LaGuardia, I can't remember. Um, but anyway, he was um, he was taken aboard a plane, which was obviously military, but uh, he re- doesn't remember seeing any numbers on it or anything like that. And there were other people aboard, and they were asked not to talk to each other, and they actually even took their watches, um, so no one could keep track of time. So he was flying, and he knew he was flying west, and uh, he could tell by the position of the sun. And he landed in a field somewhere in the southwest. He wasn't sure where or when. But he, as they landed, he, when they got out, the air was really moist, and he could tell that there was an incredible storm last night. And there were other planes in this makeshift landing area. He was sure he was in the southwest by the direction he was going and the time it took the plane to get out there. 
and there were buses, okay, and there were other planes there, and people were boarding buses, and he recognized some people boarding the other buses. And he gets on the bus, and the windows are blacked out, except for the driver, of course, and, you know, in they were asked not to talk. You know, it's a need-to-know basis. He was taken to an area that he later learned was probably right outside Roswell Airfield, where there were tents set up. He noticed that there were other people there, other experts that he ran into before in his work for the government, uh, like biomedical engineers and things like that. But he figured, you know, what the hell are they doing here unless somebody has tissue samples or bodies? He was taken to a tent with some other engineers, and he saw what he described as debris scattered in the tent. And he went over and picked up a piece, a large piece, a thick piece. It was a silver-gray, sort of metallic-looking, but it was so light, he said, that he had to actually press on it to ensure that something was in his hand. didn't react to metal detector, and, you know, it could take a lot of force, a lot of stress, strongest metals he, he's ever seen. Then he was taken, he, he personally was taken to a closed off section of that large tent. Outside, by the way, there were military guards, there were army guards, it was an army operation. He was taken to a, a section of that tent which was closed off to the other engineers and inside he saw what he described as something like a crashed, broken control panel. And he said he looked at the, the control panel and he didn't really know what he was looking at. But later today, in the 90s, by the way, he realized that what he was seeing back then was the forerunner of our computer chip technology. And he said he saw a device that was about the size of a pack of cigarettes attached to the control panel. And it had a, a red LED light on it and it was blinking, 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 as if it was sending a signal. And they found out that the signal was in the gigahertz range, which was practically unknown at that time and it seemed to be sending a very, very directional signal somewhere. Well, he was asked to uh, write up his conclusions in his report, and he was debriefed, and he was told that it was a matter of national security. And you know, he, was, he thought that was, these people who were telling him this were very serious about keeping this under wraps. And uh, later on, he said that he was taken to a place to type up a report. He finished the report and handed it in. And usually, he said he was taken home. A week or so, two weeks later, he usually gets a copy of the report of the work he's done to edit it and make sure it's accurate and so on and so on. But he never got it. And he was usually paid for his consultant services by check, government check. But a dispatcher came, knocked on his door with a case of money. He got paid in cash. Sounds like the mob was helping here. You know, I have no <laughs> idea. But uh, he kept his story secret until the 1990s after he retired. And uh, when he found out he had lung cancer, he decided to t release the story. And he said, I'm pretty sure that what I saw that day in that tent was uh, the remains of a crashed alien spaceship outside of Roswell. Because the timing in which he was out there coincide with the Roswell, you know, the corona crash. You know, that was just another link in the story. So that really piqued my interest again in Roswell. And then, of course, in the 1990s, the CNN special with the Air Force coming on saying that Roswell, you know, mythology in the desert or something, 
they put together this incredible big manual and saying that the whole Roswell thing was just Project Mogul, this weather balloon that was sent up to listen for atomic blasts over in Russia, and that the alien bodies were nothing but crash dummies and stuff like that. I thought it was very strange that a representative of the Air Force, and the Air Force would take the time to put together such a detailed, big, descriptive book explaining Roswell away if the case was closed. You know, my personal opinion about Roswell, yeah, probably something did happen there. We may never know. But Alan Hynek said he believes that it was Project Mogul, the whole thing, and it was kept secret for such a long time. And that he said to me, don't you think that all of my time as a consultant to the Air Force, that something would have crossed my desk or I would have had heard a rumor or something about a recovered alien spaceship. He said, but it was nothing. I heard, he said, I heard the tales and I heard the stories, but there was no paper trail on it. Nothing. Not well, even rumors. Phil, what about a few questions come to mind here. First off, there is that infamous memo that was written by uh, uh, Hoover, right? J. Edgar Hoover, uh, demanding access to disks. And he uses that specific language in this memo. I think it's a, I think it's a handwritten thing that uh, that Hoover had written out. Right. So, I mean, and in many ways... It was verified right. that it was Hoover's writing out. Right, right. So, I mean, you know, when you've got Hoover, a guy who's incredibly well-connected, saying, I want access to these disks... To me, that's almost right there, for my money, at least. That's a piece of smoking gun evidence. Now, let me ask you about this. Right, okay. Now, here, here's a point of concern. And by the way, I, I read the book. I like your book. I have a bunch of uh, little notes sticking out of it, things to ask you about. So, concern. This guy, John, who you met with, who gave you this story, does he have a family? Actually, he had a daughter who passed away also. Why isn't his last name in your book? Well, because, you know, when I put that story together, his daughter was still alive. And plus, you know, his connections with the government and MIT and so on, it was, I, I felt it was good. You know, in the past, when I, when I wrote Night Siege, I used people's names, first names and last names. Mm -hmm. And I got permission to do so. Right. But, you know, these people were barraged by so many different individuals who were wackos in the UFO field. So, you know, it's been my practice right now to try to keep our real names from a written material as much as possible. When I actually had the story back in the 1990s, you know, I wrote it that way to keep his name out of there. Because, you know, he still might have some family around in Greenwich. And I'm not exactly sure. So, and the name, his last name is quite a common name. So, you know, there are people out there who will try to track down these people. And unfortunately, there are nutcases out there involved in UFO research. And uh, they've oh. caused witnesses problems and, you know, myself problems in the past. So uh, that's primarily it.
Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to none other than Phil Ambrogno. He is author of a new book called Interdimensional Universe, and we're talking about a fellow named John, an engineer who may have handled materials from the Roswell crash. David, you were about to start something. Well, I'm just, again, listen, Phil, as you know, uh, in the Paracast, we're really interested in these topics. We, uh, we believe something is going on. I'm a personal experiencer. So, you know, I'm, I'm not playing the role here of, of debunker. I'm not doing that. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, but I am a skeptical thinker. And when I saw this story, I thought, this is fascinating, but we can't really attribute this to anybody. You know, you're, you're saying you met this guy, you spoke with him, he gave you this account. Now, now you're saying his daughter's gone, he's gone. So tell us his name. No, there, I'm not I mean, going to really announce it on the air because, like I said, I'm not sure if there's family left and it's a common name and, you know, he could be tracked down that way or the, rem the remnants of his family. I'm not sure exactly how much family he has left. I'm not sure. The fact is, is that, you know, um, my policy, because of Night Siege and Contact of the Fifth Kind, publishing real people's names have caused them and still they are experiencing trouble today from people who seek them out and make phone calls at all hours of the night. Unfortunately, there's not very responsible people out there involved with UFO paranormal See, research. Oh, no, I understand that, but I'm going to offer a counterpoint here. Gene and I have been doing the Paracast for two and a half years. My name is out there associated with some rather extreme stuff. Really, honestly, at this point, I, Gene and I both have a level of public visibility with this stuff. I've gone on the record with my name, talking about not just UFO stuff, but all sorts of really weird stuff. And, you know, the other week we had Nick Pope on here, and we hit him up about what the British government knows about UFOs hovering over nuclear facilities. And Pope clammed up real quick, but again, here we said this stuff on the air, 
I have a very, it's very easy to find out where I live. I use my real name. So far, knock on wood, I've had absolutely nobody harass me. Nothing. So I, well, I don't know about that. I'm not the, I'm not a particularly lucky guy. So, you know, uh, I'm out there with my name with, associated with this stuff. I've gone to conferences. Uh, you know, I mean, I've got a, a, another radio show where I've called for Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld to be arrested. I haven't had any uh, FBI guys or I haven't had any Secret Service people calling me or knocking on my door. So I'm just trying to get a handle on this. When you say that people will hassle people who come forward with this stuff. Not really I mean, hassle them. Well, they will annoy them. And so, you know, there was one particular case where I was getting letters and finally phone calls. An individual tracked me down. And this has happened on two occasions. Because of my research and publishing certain, you know, accounts of alien contact and mm -hmm. extra paranormal and so on, the letters started getting more bizarre that he was contacted by some type of alien intelligence and he was supposed to direct the way that I was supposed to say things. Now, this individual, you know, you know, I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. He even went down and took a picture of my school of me going in in the morning and mailed oh, me the picture just to prove that he knew where I worked in my time schedule. Mm. And I had to go to the police with this because it started getting very bizarre. So, yeah, it's you know, creepy. So, you know, you know, it is creepy talking about stalkers, but they are out there. And you have to be very cautious when you're dealing with other people's privacy in this account. You know, some people will say, yes, use my name, use my name. You can say where I live. And there are people in interdimensional reality whose name, real names are used. But then there are people who I thought, for whatever reason, because of what they told me, it was good to keep their story out. Now, as I say with John's story, I don't know how much of it's true, but I thought it was an interesting part that affected me into my ideas and, and feelings how I saw and viewed Roswell. Let me ask you a quick my question. Conversation with Heinick. Let me ask you a quick question here with regard to John. Did John know before he told you the story of your interest in UFOs and Roswell in particular? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, why else would he tell him the story? No, yeah, but I'm I mean, saying, is there any feeling that maybe John made this up to have a little fun with you? I don't think so, because when he found out he had lung cancer, why would he? Yeah, yeah. No, no he was I, serious. I, yeah. Okay, yeah, so no. he told you this after he, I wanted to clarify that, was diagnosed with lung cancer. Now... He, yeah, well, he knew he had it, but, you know, it was in its early stages, but he didn't tell me at the time. I found out later when he started to get real sick when I tried to talk to him again exactly what was going on but in our first meeting he didn't he didn't reveal that to me okay he didn't let on about this okay now having heard the story and having felt skeptical about Roswell all these years did this change your mind at all cause doubts maybe make you think you know what maybe there was something to it all along well it did change my mind to a certain degree I still think that a lot of Roswell is over-exaggerated and that the stories were told over and over again and people coming forward who remember something when they were a child that the experience, you know, really got exaggerated as the years goes on, especially with the popularity of Roswell itself. But John was so sincere in what he was talking about, and I knew his background. And 
he was serious and 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 he was sure at the time that he was shown crass debris from what he called an alien spaceship and he held this story for many many years uh, probably until he knew he was diagnosed with a terminal disease and uh, wanted to tell somebody and uh, I was picked because you know he knew he knew my interest in UFOs we had mutual contacts up at MIT and um, he didn't live that far from where I was living at the time so he told me the story but before that time what what from the conversations I had with Alan Hynek and the discussions I had with Alan Hynek, you know, I would think, why would Alan Hynek lie to me if he, you know, he was so open about UFOs, especially to the time close to his death, that he would say, yeah, Roswell was real. But up to the time that Hynek passed away, he was convinced that Roswell was a fairy tale. Well, it's not that he lied to you. That was his perception of it, right? I mean, that was just his opinion. Yeah, but that was his opinion. But don't you think, and this is what he said, that all of his years working for the government, especially during that time and after that time, that, you know, he, he would have seen something. You know, Alan Hyman carried around a, a, an address book. And he was flipping through it one day, trying to call some numbers. And I'm sitting next to him because he was using my phone. And there were people like in all these government intelligence positions and, and military numbers with General so-and-so at the Pentagon and stuff. Come on, you know, don't you think that this guy would have heard something about it? But, you know, he was... Well, maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, it's isn't isn't the whole point about government secrecy, we think they can't keep stuff secret, and then we find out that there are things they've been sitting on for 40, 50 years that indeed they could keep secret. So I'm not I'm not shocked by that, especially with Hynek's visibility in the UFO field. If anything else, I would think that powers that be would would have used him as a great source for for spreading disinformation. I mean, I, oh, I, oh, they did. Oh, they well, did. Well, exactly. So, so my, there you go. Right. Oh, so one of my conclusions were is that you know Heineck didn't know anything about it, and he thought it was just a big old you know fairy tale. The second yeah. is is that Heineck told me he said that he was still on a government pension, being oh, twenty years go. as a consultant, and yeah. he, he said he said to me one time he would look at me when I would really deal into some questions concerning his working with the Air Force and so on. He would look at me, puff on his pipe, go silent, and say. I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. Well, then, I mean, I hate to be rude, but at that point, when a guy says, well, I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me, he's useless. I'm sorry, and this is, I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for saying this right now, but my God, you know what? This planet just has a big for sale sign on it. That's it. Everybody's for sale. So you got Heineck, who's got this great reputation, who's considered rock solid, and he told you, I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds. Well, thank you for just crossing him off my list of credible sources of information. Well, and, you, and again, you have to remember that, um, you know, he was, you know, on government contract for 20 years. And yeah. he probably signed security statements, and he probably never revealed it to anyone. <sighs> and that's the impression that I got. Okay, so, but know, then you see things like Roswell, well... If he was around that time working for them as he was, he might have been one of the early people to be involved, but he also signs an agreement with his employer saying he's not going to talk about it, mm -hmm. and he wants to protect his family, 
And so he was a good soldier. So maybe he explored UFOs, was very open to a lot of things, but he saw things during his tenure of working for the government that he just couldn't talk about. I'll give you a corollary example. We talked to Nick Pope, and we had an enjoyable time with him, but I think listeners kind of agreed with us that maybe he wasn't so forthcoming about things, but he gave you the answer. He worked 21 years with the British government. There were secrets he had to observe. And, you know, you can't tell a person not to do that. These people were not millionaires. Dr. Hynek, as well-known as he was, was not somebody rolling in money. He was a college professor. Well, this is true. And he said to me one time, you know, uh, well, after, you know, the Air Force and so on, you know, UFOs put both of his kids through college. So, All right. I mean, uh, I'm just I mean, getting ill. I'm just getting nauseous. Okay. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, so, uh-huh. I mean, if, look today. There's just so much stuff going on because UFOs are popular again. I mean, sort of like there's so many people out there that are, you know, uh, trying to cash in on it, and so to speak. Uh, I mean, you know, you have a lot of TV shows coming on. The networks are cashing in on it, and so on. You know, but Alan Hynek wasn't never really wealthy or something from UFOs. But, you know, it, it did provide a certain amount of, of income for him, like it does, you know, a lot of well-known UFO researchers today. Let's talk about a John whose last name you do reveal in the book, oh. Phil. John G. Fuller who uh, is a fascinating guy, and fascinating guy. I remember reading Incident Exeter early on. Uh, yes, he wrote books about the paranormal and made money off them. I'm not going to give him crap, though, because he wrote the book about what I personally believe is the most important paranormal case of the 20th century, and that would be Jose Arrigo. Version right. of the rusty knife. Yeah. You got it. Uh, 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 all about that. He was amazed by him. I don't know. Well, now this is what I want to ask you about because here you spend time with the man. I have uh, been fascinated by that case for a number of years, and uh, Fuller's book is the only real documentation that exists on the case, and it's very well researched. It's very well written. So, what did he share with you about the case, Phil? Very quickly, he said he was down there and he saw some of the surgical procedures that were done, and he was convinced that they were very real. He was fascinated by the guy. There wasn't much conversation about it. He brought it up once or twice and mm-hmm. uh, because he was so amazed by it. But he did see this person do the surgery, from what I right. understand. He was a smart guy and very, very alert and quick at things and witty. And if there was some type of fraud going on there, I think he would have picked it out. He was amazed by this individual. You know, I saw him. That's all I can say about it. I saw John Fuller and debate on a TV show with Donald Menzel. Okay, this goes back a lot of years ago. Oh, yeah. And he just lit into Menzel when Menzel was talking about something. And Menzel aged 25 years then he was a guy in his late 70s or early 80s he aged 25 years on that tv show because of the way fuller led into him brain tonic the smart antidote to head fog the world's first organic botanical based caffeine free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity tastes great super safe 
with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.airyradio.com. Hey neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time. Because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen. We're talking to Philip Imbrogno. He's author of a new book, Interdimensional Universe, The New Science of UFOs, Paranormal Phenomena, and Other Dimensional Beings. And, of course, the implication from the title is that you're taking the UFO phenomenon and other related stuff, and you are developing a theory here that there's a lot more going on it may be other dimensional in what sense uh you know we're talking about the idea that the entire the entire what we call the ufo phenomena is so complex that extraterrestrial spacecrafts and so on may account for some of the reports but there's something else there's an undertowing another another element there that for years and years and years ufo researchers have shied away from it because it dabbles too much in the paranormal that uh, we, there may be parallel realities around us and there may be multiple dimensions that exist around us and that some of this phenomena may come from these close realities into our world from time to time or millennia to millennia, maybe a cycle involved with it. But definitely, you know, what we're seeing and people are, are reporting is escalated. So there must be something going on escalating. in a periodic basis. You just hit me with something here. In what fashion and what way are they escalating? Well, there are more UFO sightings taking place and there are more paranormal phenomena taking place. You know, with all of this stuff on TV, you would think, well, it's all on TV, so people are getting charged about it and getting an interest in it. But you see, UFOs was pretty dead for a while. No publishers would even touch UFO books. But all these experiences started happening. All these reports from all over the world started escalating. And usually... People get interested because of being programmed by the media. But in this case, I believe it was because all of these people and all of these situations and all these paranormal experiences happening, 
that there was an interest developed outside the media, and the media got interested because of all of these things taking place and started all these shows on TV and just added fuel to the fire. But usually it's reverse. Usually the media starts and the people get interested and start reporting everything. But this time it was happening to people first, and then the media picked up on it because all of these people having these experiences started all of these shows. You know, one factor in some shows I've seen recently, there's one on BBC America, which is a British show, a science fiction show, where dinosaurs and other creatures of our past come through this kind of warp area. And then we had a remake, a rather bad remake of the Flash Gordon TV series, where they got to the planet Mongo by virtue of this window area where you have some kind of space warp that you go in there and you end up on this other planet. Not like the Stargate series, but maybe similar. In the case of what John Keel said over the years, he talked about window areas, doorways between our world or reality and elsewhere. So do you think that maybe there are more window areas now or that the window areas are present more often? Is that what might be happening, why things are on the increase? Well, I think that um, over a period of time or because of maybe our composition in the cosmos or whatever, that these dimensional portals or windows um, open up or become more prominent or become more numerous, like nodes, you know, electrical nodes, and that we may be seeing that now. I mean, even in New York State up here, I mean, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting all kinds of, of, of reports of paranormal that I never really uh, got before. Not only UFOs, but it, the whole spectrum. I mean, even Bigfoot sightings, for Christ's sakes. But John Keel talked about these um, things well back in the '60s. And it wasn't until, you know, Alan Hynek, in, uh, close to his death in the 80s, that he told me that uh, he believed that John Keel was right on target with all this. When I told John that, John was shocked because Hynek was one of his uh, greatest critics, and they never saw eye to eye on everything. But Hynek himself believed that there were parallel realities and that there were windows in the space-time continuum that allowed us to make bridges, sort of like an Einstein-Rosen bridge to a parallel reality. With current theory in quantum mechanics, it's showing that uh, with these mathematical equations that, you know, the universe itself existing around us could have as many as 26 dimensions. They fold on each other. They loop around each other and create these pockets of reality which were in one. So this is an, an amazing stuff, stuff that would have been considered 20 years ago the realm of science fiction and uh, laughed at by the scientific community. If you look at some of these science shows that are around now on BBC or the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, some of them, the theories are so outrageous that they sound like the sci-fi of the 60s and the 50s. The Twilight Zone, the Outer Limits, the same ideas are being proposed that Rod Sterling wrote about concerning parallel realities. Well, I mean, the first multidimensional book really written for any kind of mass consumption was written in 1884, Flatland, right. by Edwin Abbott Abbott. I mean, he, he wrote that in 1884. 
and yeah. it's it, it's it's certainly important reading. In fact, there are um, there are a couple of animations floating around that people have done in the last few years. There were a couple of big projects to animate the book, and it's very it's very informational in terms of understanding what we're talking about here at the most basic layperson's level. You know, and and listen, like anything else, guys, discussion of these topics ends up getting contaminated. Right there was a, a film that came out a number of years ago. What the bleep do we know? I saw it in a theater, and it, it was getting into some of these topics that were very fascinating. It was getting into the multidimensional theories, and you know we're talking about quantum mechanics, quantum physics, string theory, embrane theory. I mean, it's just and, and by the way, these are all indeed at this point in time theories because we have a real problem with instrumentation trying to deal with this stuff and in re reproducible experimental results there's some real problems around this but clearly we're, 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 we're coming to understand that we don't understand a lot about the nature of the universe but in that documentary what the bleep do we know we have we find out after the fact that a number of scientists who were interviewed in that movie did not know the context in which their statements were going to be used and then we had the Jay-Z Nightwoman, the Ramtha Chandler. You know, here's the thing, Phil. We'll segue into this a little later in, in, in the conversation. I know that you don't deal specifically, I think, with the Ramtha woman in your book, but you do deal with some channeling stuff. Right. And I found the descriptions of that really interesting because you were describing one thing that happened in 2002 in New York City where you went to this right. channeling event with this guy, Brett. And, and, and I'm reading this, and it's kind of interesting because I think that my response to the situation would have been pretty similar to yours, where you're seeing there's this weird physical change in the room. Things got much colder. But some of what you're hearing coming out of this guy's mouth, I mean, what was it? There's something here you say. When Brett started channeling Monka, there was a notable change in his voice, and the accent was, was I would say, Indian or Middle Eastern. It seems that most channelers use this type of accent, and I guess if you are channeling a great wise master, this type of voice is more convincing than a Brooklyn or Southern accent. And I, and I laughed out loud because I thought, yeah, yeah, here I am. I'm from the other dimensions, and I want to tell you, there's Who's nothing like Harva. You've got to have an exciting name. <laughs> I knew a, a one channeler who changed the name to Raphael because his real name was Clyde. Hey, one of my best buddies' his name is Clyde, and... He's one of the most interesting characters I know. What's wrong with the name Clyde? Well, I mean, for a channeler, you know, hey, you know, what's your name, Great Ascendant Master? My name is Clyde. I don't see a problem with that. One of the greatest guys I know, his name is Clyde. That's okay. Well, it may I mean, be in this plane of existence, you know, but <laughs> when you're sitting down, you're going to pay $150 an hour to listen to a channeler. I mean, you want to hear a name like, you know, Boonpow or whatever, no, you know. I, uh, no, screw that. No, no. I want heck. No, 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 no. Let's, you know what? The greatest religious figure of all history is Bob Dobbs. His name is Bob. Okay? Greatest religious figure in all of religious history. Gene Steinberg has a shrine in his home set up to Bob Dobbs, and he won't talk about it. That's right. I'm, out I'm not going to talk about it. Don't even say anything. Shh. Right. Anyway. But no, no, seriously, Phil. So, so the problem is, like in that, in that thing, uh, I, I almost call it a documentary. It really isn't. Uh, what the bleep do we know? We have talk about topics regarding uh, expansion of one's understanding of the nature of reality, the universe, and matter, mixed in with you know channeling crap. So, what's the story? Do you think with this? I mean, is it just that when you start to go into these murky territories, 
uh, it just makes it such that there are charlatans in even greater numbers than we normally encounter them in normal life? I've researched and been to quite a few channeling sessions, and it was my conclusion that 9 out of 10 of them are just full of crap. Okay. You know? so, yeah. Now, there's a certain percentage after that that's inconclusive, but then again, there is a small percentage in which, you know, you cannot explain some of the things that they produced. In one particular case, uh, a fellow by the name of Dean Fagerstrom, which is his real name, produced these outrageous technical diagrams, which in, are still amazing. People in scientific fields are amazed when they look at them. There's not enough information on there, but, you know, everything is done technically right. And he actually uh, did a number of pages, 20 pages of an unknown language and so on. You know, so, so when, when somebody produces something like this, you have to pay attention. This fellow, he's a night watchman. But most of the stuff that's produced is um, by channelers is not even worth it. For example, in one channeling session that I was at, they said that uh, the extraterrestrials, there were extraterrestrials channeling through this person, that they were going to channel through diagrams to build devices in which I could communicate with these aliens directly. But it's going to take six months, so I'd have to go to, you know, six months of these channeling sessions at this place with this particular individual once a week. And I said to them, you know, to, to the ET or the channeler, I'd send a message, and I said, well, why don't you just come down in your spaceships and drop it off, and I'll pick it up, and we'll save a lot of time. Well, needless to say, I didn't play the game, so I was not invited back. Oh, that's well. too bad. We'll invite people to this message. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Philip Ambrogno on the Paracast. He's author of a new book, Interdimensional Universe, The New Science of UFOs, Paranormal Phenomena, and Other Dimensional Beings. Okay, you said that there's a small element of channeling that's not so easily explained as BS. All right, how do we relate that channeling to the UFO mystery, for example? We can because many of the, uh, the beings, let's say, for example, I'll give one example of this Dean Fagestrop. He claimed that this entity, Dinestra, worked through him. And uh, if you look at the descriptions of Dinestra, they look like the extraterrestrials where people have contact the Nords, you know, the blonde hair, blue eyes sort of thing. Right, the right. That sort of entity. So it works in that way. And plus, he claims that he had multiple contacts 
with this alien intelligence, and they came down in a ship. She has seen the ships. They're multidimensional. They travel between dimensions, and uh, some of these beings have gone beyond the need of a physical body. So they're not physical as we know it. So you get this sort of thing. It's a connection to the UFO phenomena. You know, it's, it's not simple, basic UFO stuff. It's something that's attached to UFOs. Like I said, there's these, you know, nuts and bolts sightings, apparently, where people have these close encounters. But there's also another aspect of the UFO sighting that's more paranormal, in which groups like MUFON and APRO and KUFOS have stayed away from for so many years. But to me, it's all part of the phenomena. And, you know, you have to separate the signal from the noise. All of this stuff needs to be investigated to find out, even if a small percentage is real, it contributes to our understanding of, you know, what we're dealing with here. So you bring up this guy, uh, Dean Fagerstrom, and I noticed that in UFO Magazine, Phil, it, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, um, you had written a feature story about this. Yeah, about the contacts from Solarian with the, some of the diagrams. Yeah. Now, okay, let's talk about this because you've written about it. I guess it's uh, covered in Contact of the Fifth Kind, another book of yours. So this Dean Fagerstrom guy, right? Right. Did anybody do a mental uh, work upon him, psychological profile? Do we find out if he has any form of schizophrenia? I mean, is, was there any attempt to do a rundown on his psychological makeup? Well, the only thing that we did is uh, he would love to, he loves to talk to people, you know, if, um, especially if I recommend him. And I sent a, a psychologist up there to talk to him once, and he didn't come back with a very favorable report. He was saying that hmm. Dean could not give a yes or no answer. All of his explanations were long and drawn out, which is an example of, you know, a schizophrenic nature. Hmm. But if you, you have to figure this. If you have this guy who's a night watch who's, you know, he does, he's not really into, uh, you know, a lot of cult stuff. You know, when I was talking to him the first time, he's puffing on a cigarette and slugging down a beer, claiming that these entities, you know, uh, communicate with him and talk through him. You know, but there's only a certain, there's a limit that what you can do with people. And, and so, you know, there are quite a few people who have talked to Dean and were pretty amazed by what he had to say. He's obviously uh, a lot smarter than his job description is, you know. Whether or not there's an outside force or this guy's a schizophrenic with super genius capabilities, I don't know for sure. Well, Some I mean, of the things that he's produced can't be explained in the normal sense. No, I, I understand that. But see, the thing is that when we talk about this topic, and again, I'm, I'm just trying to play the role of rationalist, that's all. Okay, there are a lot of things that are possible, and so we know that almost anything is possible, but what we try to do at that point is look for what's probable. There's been a lot of research into the, well, it used to be called idiot savants, now I think they're called autistic savants. You have a, a guy, there was a 60-minute segment on this recently, you know, the guy who can't tie his own shoelaces, can't, can't count to four, who can hear any piece of music and instantly recreate it on a piano, including very complex chords that require a level of musical theory and understanding that this guy just doesn't have. And yet he's doing these things that sonically, musically, are, you know, quote-unquote, impossible. And yet there is this guy doing it. When I look at the Fagerstrom stuff, and I remember reading this in UFO magazine going, this is really interesting. 
I, it caught my interest. And then I see you bring it up in this book. I'm curious. Who looked, what scientists looked at his drawings and said, this is compelling? I assume this happened, right? That the, These right. things were given to Heine, real scientists. Yeah, Alan Heine took sure. it to uh, Northwestern University, where mm -hmm. it, it got quite a bit of attention. Professor Robert Sinclair of Princeton at physics looked at him and said, these things are intriguing, but there's not enough information on there to actually tell what the material's made out of, that you can only go so far. It was up at MIT also, and, you know, it was, the, I brought the diagrams up there and passed them around, and, and people were fascinated. But when I told them how they were done, they just walked away from them. Right, yeah. Plus, you know, not only scientists looking at them. I had people in, you know, who are artists look at the diagrams and, and you know, they're saying, well, it's a beautiful piece of artwork. You know, whoever drew these exact, knew exactly what they were doing. Like letting people look at them from all angles, from, from all different fields to get different feedback on it. But once again, it's like the whole UFO thing. It takes you a certain way, a certain distance, and then it stops. What could you do from there? You know, this is what I say in my new book, Interdimensional Universe. I mean, I think I've gone about as far as I can go with this. I mean, this has yeah. you know, got to be my last book about UFOs because yeah. if there's any more, you know, um, they're just going to have to come into, you know, landing in the field and take me aboard and show me what's going on here if I'm going to write about it anymore. Because I think all UFO investigators, researchers, paranormal investigators, have gone so far, and there's like a veil there because we're in the physical universe and we don't have the scientific instruments to really study and document this. So we've gone about as far as we can go. You know, what concerns me in the UFO field, and, you know, I have to tell you that, you know, I read all of this material from a lot of other authors and researchers claiming to have all this so-called secret government information that they're revealing. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's filled with it. And I have to really doubt that because, you know, when my book Night Siege was published, there was a chapter in there called Close Encounter at Indian Point and uh, where I actually talked about the first time, one of the first times a UFO was verified as being over a reactor. And the fact is, is that meeting and talking to, you know, these New York State Power Authority police officers, I really got my ears pinned back on it uh, because um, I was told that I was probably um, informed about certain things that would violate the reactor security and so on and so on and so on. But, you know, we're not getting into it in detail, but uh, that caused me quite a bit of problem. And I only touched on something that involved uh, a security area with the government. And uh, so when I see all of these people presenting all of these documents and all these secret stuff, they have all the secret information about the government and all this. You know, I have to really doubt it because of my experiences. I think whatever gets released is what these uh, secret organizations in the government want to be released. And anything that, if anybody takes it and it's going to publish it or something, I think they'd, I believe they would stop it right away. I can only tell from my experiences. I mean, I just touched on the idea of UFOs in a nuclear reactor in a security area. And, you know, I really got my ears pinned back. And, and it's a good thing I was, you know, working with John Fuller at the time who who said to me, you know, those bastards, you know, just ignore them and, and just keep on doing what you're doing and let them take you to court. I'll get my lawyers to help you. 
so my feeling is is that whatever out there in these so-called very revealing books is uh, just information that is allowed to get out there. Right. Now, meanwhile, you've got someone like Richard Dolan who, uh, with his book UFOs and the National Security State, maybe doesn't put out anything that's you'd consider highly confidential or top secret, but makes a pretty strong case, I think, for the idea that the government is sitting on top of a bunch of information. Now, we've talked to Rich. We've asked him, again, if he's come under any kind of real pressure. And, you know, he talks about some of his... Um, government and military contacts won't mention them by name which ends up frustrating our, our our audience they're like well why wouldn't he mention their names and at that point i mean it's pretty clear he's not going to blow his sources i mean that's just that's called journalistic integrity and and a lot of people have gotten a lot of heat for that in the history of journalism so you know you, you've always got that problem where you can't reveal too much but um, at the same time, people want what they want. They want information. Now, I assume, Phil, that you agree that at this point, it's pretty clear the government's sitting on top of a bunch of stuff for whatever reason they don't want us to know, right, in, in, in terms of this topic. Well, I think that's true. Before Nightseed was published, I was contacted by the Air Force, and they were very concerned about what was going to be in that book. And because uh, they didn't want to start a UFO scare and didn't want to start a UFO craze again. And, you know, I got an official letter from a lieutenant colonel, you know, and then I, would, I got a telephone call from a major Burdett up in um, Burlington, Massachusetts. And the fella had me on the phone for 45 minutes. And it was more or less, uh, he, I knew that he was collecting information for somebody else, that this fella had no interest in UFOs and uh, was not part of a UFO investigation team he was doing his job collecting information i even tried to you know talk to him yeah, see you know i was in the military and so on and so on and tried to you know get a little bit of emotion out of the guy and a little interest and, and joke a little bit about it but he was like you know dead serious just to do his job so but one thing that happened out of that contact which was a little unusual um, he said, well, um, will you send us all the material that's going to be in the book, and in, in turn, we'll send you documents of UFO reports that have been collected by the FAA. I said, you know, I have no problem with that. I mean, it's going to be published anyway. I mean, you know, so I sent him the material, what was going to be in the book, and he said, he said, we believe that some of the uh, UFO sightings in the Hudson Valley could have been, in fact, uh, people were seeing an experimental vehicle that was high out at high altitude that's used for surveillance. Well, you know, I let that go, you know, go by, whatever. But I received actually a pack of documents about uh, from the FAA um, to the Air Force asking what to do with UFO sightings and um, sightings of underwater submarine objects out in Long Island Sound. Very little of it was blacked out, but there wasn't that much information in these documents. But I think one of the strangest things that was included in those documents was a letter from a woman, a witness out in Tennessee, I believe, who had this incredible encounter with a large triangular-shaped UFO. The letter was addressed to Bob Pratt, and it was dated back in the 70s, I believe. And it was an original letter. That came with the documents. 
An so original letter? Up, really? An original letter, yes. Not a, not a photocopy, the actual letter. No, it was original with their signature, the signature oh. in pen. So I called Bob down in Florida, and I said, Bob, you know, I just got a bunch of documents from, from the Air Force up in Burlington, Massachusetts, about UFOs, a lot of interesting things. He said, he kept going, you know, what's in there? And so I said, well, you know, I'll, uh, you know, I'll send you copies of what I have, but there's a letter here that's addressed to you about a UFO sighting and so on and so on. And you know what he said? I never received that letter. I was interested in those sightings back then, started yeah. investigating them. I think he was investigating them for the Enquirer or whatever, and I never got that letter. So, so much this, for the Air Force giving up UFO investigation exactly. in the 1960s. And, and the thing yeah. is that they, were monitor, they must have been monitoring the mail, or they do it at certain times and intercept letters from individuals who have been known to have UFO sightings that mail a report back then. Of course, back then there was no email. And uh, this letter was intercepted by the Air Force, and the original was in the uh, Air Force base at Burlington, Massachusetts. And um, it must have been sent to me by accident. Okay, this letter. Who wrote this letter? Was somebody connected with the Air Force? Somebody in the Air no, Force? No, no, no. A woman who saw this object. Yes. Okay, yeah, fine. But she didn't have any. So basically, let's basically get this up front here. We're talking here about a woman who sees a UFO. She's not connected with the military in any way. And suddenly, no. some Air Force base has a copy of her letter. Has the letter and never gets to its recipient. Sure. And Bob saying that he never received that letter because Whoa. he was investigating those series of sightings at the time, I believe, and I can't remember correctly, but he was doing a story for the Enquirer when he was working for the Enquirer, the UFO stuff. And he said that uh, he never received that letter. And I had the original. And so I, I considered that um, some proof that the Air Force and maybe the government or some branch of the government was intercepting UFO material in the mail uh, and may periodically also be doing so. Of course, with email now, all they, they think it open up any email file now they want going through the, the Internet Hub. That's right. We should point out to people here that the email you send, unless it's encrypted at the source, people can sniff it, okay? Even if you have what they call SSL, which supposedly encrypts your email messages to an email server, that's only to that email server, like, for example, your ISP or something. From there, it's out in the open. Anybody can get it, period. Yeah, no, let's be, let's be clear about this, and, and, I, and I would hope that anybody listening to the Paracast is fully aware of this. At this point in time, given what's been going on in the United States the last eight years, uh, it's a well-known fact, not a conspiracy theory, but a fact, that every single voice communication call, email, and fax is indeed being intercepted and monitored. Every single one, every cell phone call, every landline call, every email, and every fax. What's interesting is that Skype is one of the only genuinely secure real-time forms of communication available today. And, and who knows how long that's going to last. But, you know, just, just realize, folks, anytime you, you generate a communication in any of the before-mentioned uh, mediums, it's it's being read by a machine somewhere. It's being scanned for keywords. That's not a conspiracy theory. 
that is an institutional analysis. That's a reality. So it, it just it just bears mentioning because I think a lot of people still believe that somehow this is in the realm of fantasy, and it is not. This has been going on for years now. So you know, people need to just realize that. That's all. You know, and 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 and, and, and you know, so what does that mean? That means that there is no privacy. But at the same time, Phil, you're describing uh, the Air Force with presumably some other uh, government agency related or not related directly to it, actively monitoring people's mail communications years ago. This is not yesterday. This is years ago, right? This is like in the, uh, the late, mid-70s. This is after the Air Force gave up investigation. We'll pick oh, up on after. this. We'll pick up on this. They, they were collecting, you know, they were still collecting reports. That's right. We'll pick up on this, by the way. We'll pick up on this with Philip Imbrogno, author of Interdimensional Universe, on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietnam. On the Paracast, we're talking to Philip Imbrogno. He is the author of Interdimensional Universe, subtitled, the New Science of UFOs, Paranormal Phenomena, and Other Dimensional Beings. And we got into a discussion here in the first part, towards the end of the first part, into privacy concerns. And as David says, just about anything you do, someone is sniffing. And maybe the only way you could really get privacy is to play music while you're talking like they do in the spy films, but then they'll have a way of filtering out that sound. No, who cares at this point? Look, you have to live life knowing that your life's going to end. And this whole thing about fear, when I hear about people uh, relating to this topic, being afraid of talking, being afraid of revealing the realities that maybe they know about, things that they've witnessed, and you hear about this, and, and to hear about Heineck making the comment about, you know, having to not bite the hand that feeds, I'm just it just makes me nauseous at this point. I just have to tell you that really just blew his credibility in my eyes absolutely and completely. He's no longer credible. But isn't that true with anybody, almost anybody who's on a government pension, that unless they have some outside source of income that's really lucrative, they're going to be forced to make a few concessions? Yeah, well, you know what? As I said, it, the minute someone has a for sale sign on them, it's over. That's all. It's over. And, and that extends to any realm of reality we care to talk about, whether it's politics or religion uh, or the military-industrial complex. I mean, any of this. Once you're willing to sell yourself, then you know there is a term for that, and it's not consultant. All right. So what you know, we have to just just. And I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't be able to earn a living. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that once they're willing to throw out their integrity for a shekel, they're, they're no longer relevant to a conversation of reality. They have defined their reality very clearly at that point. And, you know, we, we're doing the paracast not because we're raking in any big bucks here. We are certainly not. What's going on here is we're trying to get to the bottom of things and trying to listen. And, Phil, this is something I think that, that that's clear in your book. Um, you know, reading your book, I get the sense that we're never going to really understand this because the nature of the phenomenon of what UFOs are is that they don't want us to know. And at that point, who are we? You know, we think we're these high and mighty creatures, but if these uh, these creatures, whatever they are, with their technology, which appears to be far in advance of ours, if they don't want us to understand what they're doing, there's we could ask all the questions 
that we can think of until the stars burn out, and we're not going to know. That's all. And that's true. But, you know, then again, you know, uh, people become very opinionated and think they have all the answers. And, you know, we don't have the answers, and, and, and there's only so far we can go with an understanding of this unless who's ever behind it actually takes us and shows us exactly what's going on. What they'd rather do, it looks like, if they communicate with us at all, is to show us tantalizing hints or just mislead us, which is also part of the problem. And then the other issue, which is one I've raised several times, and some people don't like it, but I always raise it again, that our own government is engaged in misinformation and disinformation, that sometimes they're creating instances of paranormal events for experimentation, whatever, to learn more about the subject. Who knows why they're doing it? Just to justify their grants, I have no idea. But whatever it is, we have to separate that from all the other garbage that's out there in the in the sandbox. Yeah, you know, and of course the the issue also is that uh, there are many people out there who are looking for attention that um, you know don't have much of a life that are claiming all these incredible experiences and getting the attention. I mean, so that you know adds more garbage to uh, when you when you're trying to do research. And people would ask me, you know, oh come on, you know, you know, why don't you have any answers to all this? You've been doing it for so many years. Oh, for God's sake, you know, what am I doing? You know, going to my bank account and doing the research. The books don't bring in enough income. The only people who make money on the books is the publishers and the agents. And, uh, you know, and how much goes back to the research after the IRS and so on. So, you know, but I think there are, there are certain researchers out there who have done exceptional jobs with the limited resources that they have. And, of course, then there are some, you know, who cashed in big time on all this and, uh, and, and so on. But it's, you know, it's such a complex phenomena that there's not much you can do as an individual unless you have incredible big backing to explore this realm. All you can do is try to document it the best you can from what you have. But yet, on the other side of that, it's the individual's who are having the most compelling experiences, not groups of people. You know, this, and, and, and this brings us now into sort of a meta theory about all of this, guys. Now, you, you have a lot of uh, coverage in here, Phil, uh, of things like the jinn, angels, and I hear George Snorri somewhere. I hear his mustache vibrating. Don't ask why. When the, the moment I said the term angels, I could hear his mustache vibrating near a Hebrew national hot dog. I don't know what that means. I'm not psychic. But w what you've got now are these experiences where there seems to be a fairly high level of customization of the experience to the cultural indoctrination and expectations of the experiencer. We've talked about this a lot on the Paracast, and, and something that keeps coming up is the idea, and I'm going to ask you for your impression of this idea, the idea that our perceptions have more to do with shaping the nature of what these things are than we even care to admit. Would you agree or disagree with that? Well, I agree with that 100%. And uh, many people will give their own interpretation to their own experiences to try to deal with it. So, uh, you know, it's not really the phenomena taking a shape to the person, but the person, you know, shaping the phenomena to deal with it. I mean, the fact is angels. I mean, you know, you can you look at whatever you want. Um, a 
angels are part of the UFO experience and contact experience. And, uh, you know, if you want to look at the wing cherub types of things, you know, well, that doesn't really fit. But, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that, you know, there may be intelligent dimensional beings in the universe that do encounter people and they say that, you know, people identify them as angels because they want to, you know, feel secure and that they were specially chosen and to understand their contact experience and deal with it. So they, uh, so they say well, they were angels, although the entities never said they were angels. Last time I checked, in the Bible, when angels come to Earth, it's to... Uh, do things like get revenge for God, to spill blood for God, to do bad things to humans, essentially. So this idea that angels are somehow beneficial, I don't know when this started, but my limited understanding of the Bible is that the last thing you want to do as a human is meet up with an angel. Well, it, pretty much, it, it means that you're going to basically be sacrificed. It means that you're probably going to have a very bad experience and that uh, these angelic entities, whoever they are, some type of higher order of race, they really don't look very well. They don't look good on human beings. Uh, they don't seem to be here to really guide us and help us. They so much of their literature is that they're destroying cities and uh, uh, ripping out the internal organs of individuals and attacking them and punishing them and and so on. So you know, there's a saying that you know, you know, you never really want to meet an angel. But then again, you know, you have all of these people who are channeling the angel Gabriel, Raphael, Michael. I mean, you know, what a bunch of bull crap. I mean, I mean, and these people are have an audience, and whether they believe it or not, I don't know. But I think they convince themselves that they go into this trance and and these angels are talking through them. I mean, this is all part of the contact experience that I think, you know, really has to be explored, and I've done it to a certain degree. And now when I get invited to channeling sessions, unless, you know, or something, somebody produces something, some information, something like a diagram or whatever up front, you know, I will just bypass this stuff now. But it has to be considered in the overall phenomenon whether it's psychological or or whatever. But it's very possible that in some of these channeling sessions that there's other entities out there that are totally hiding themselves and uh, just using people. So, you know, that's a possibility too. And this is where we're in how I talk about the jinn. And most people don't even know the word jinn. It's, you know, the same thing as genie. But in Middle Eastern cultures, the jinn are just as real as the Christian version and the Judaism version of angels. And, but in our culture, they've been completely brushed aside. But the Native Americans also know the idea of the jinn and consider the jinn and call them tricksters. And uh, the word jinn means hidden. And basically that's, it seems, what these entities do. They may be dimensional in nature. They may be responsible for some of the paranormal phenomena and some of the contact phenomena and UFO phenomena that we're seeing that's interdimensional. You can call them whatever you want. Jinn is just a word that's taken from, you know, the Islamic beliefs. But 
it may be, and I believe it's probably so, that these other dimensional existence realities are inhabited by intelligent beings. And we're seeing manifestations of this in our world today. And, of course, we only get very small glimpses of it. So we label it, and it's not telling us who it is and what it is and why it's here. So we do the interpretation on our part. What, what we're saying there, and, and, and by the way, just let's get some clarification here. People get uncomfortable when the term dimensional is thrown out into the conversation. All right, And, and I, I think we need to just define this a little bit. Which is, and, and we started doing that a little bit at the beginning, which is to talk about, you know, some of the advances in particle physics, quantum mechanics, the idea that we have a universe that is not all visible to us. And I think that human beings need to get real humble real fast and realize that the limitations of our senses, of our sight, our hearing, of our smell, of our touch and our taste, these are very significant limitations. Most of the activity that matter does around us is invisible to our senses. And, and there again, we also have to understand that even our instrumentation is constrained by our current technology and our ability to parse or process the information that that instrumentation is giving us. So we're at a time in, in physics where the majority of the matter that makes up the universe is essentially an unknown entity to us. We, we, we refer to them as dark matter and dark energy, but we don't really know what they consist of. Right. So we're, we're essentially working in the dark there. And when we talk about interdimensional stuff, interdimensional sourcing, we are talking about a level of reality that we do not have instrumentation for. Our mathematics only vaguely accommodates our physics only vaguely accommodates. It's important that people understand that in the world of, of, of experimental physics, the people who are pushing things like string theory and M, the M-brain theory, these are considered to be people who are out on the fringe. These are not considered to be the mainstream of the physics world. These are people who a lot of physicists have problems those are the, the paranormal physicists. So sure. the ones that are pushing stuff out out forward, well, you know, well, like Mishio Kaku, right? He's considered by many to be sort of one of the leading lights of the stuff, as well as Brian Greene. But these guys at this point are almost seen to be as much uh, entertainers as they are scientists. I mean, these are guys who you tend to see on television. And when you go to the, to the TV place, the, everything changes because you have to boil everything down to the lowest common denominator. Now, Phil, we've talked about this on the Paracast before, and I just want to bring it up and get your, your, your feedback on it. Um, when we are talking about the potential sourcing of these beings being from other star systems, from other parts of the galaxy, I mean, some people start talking about, well, from other galaxies, which I think, I kind of, I'm with Stanton Friedman on this point, that you don't have to look for up to other galaxies. There's enough stuff going on in our little galaxy here um, to indicate that there's probably a fairly significant number of technologically advanced species that are capable of pulling off the kinds of feats we've seen here on Earth um, in terms of the way these craft maneuver. Um, the idea that if you're coming here from another star system, the only way you can really pull it off is to use tricks to bend around, so to speak, 
the limitations of the universe and the dimensional construct we live in as we understand it. So if you're going to travel, let's say, from 40,000 light years away from the other side of the galaxy to this side, the only way you can reasonably do it is by having a craft that violates the human known laws of physics, which sort of sort of seems to indicate that any interstellar traveler is almost by definition an interdimensional traveler. Would you agree with that? Before he gives his answer, this is the cliffhanger, ladies and gentlemen. In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring, comes something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. Yeah. Stephen Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Gordon. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Brogno. Michael Manuel. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sucolos. Jeremy Faney. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. Presentations by Combustion Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth illusion of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you're in the paradise with james steinberg and david Bailey. you never know what's going to happen next We're talking to Philip Ambrogno, and he's author of a new book called Interdimensional Universe, and he's going to answer the great question about interdimensional travelers. Go ahead, please. Yes, I do believe that, and and like I said, like I said in the book, uh, it's very possible that a percentage of UFOs are extraterrestrials that do travel through, let's say, you know, wormholes. Um, Einstein rows and bridges and, and so on. But we're also dealing with another element that doesn't seem to be uh, the same as some of the UFO reports. And that may be interdimensional and they may not have to travel a very long distance or go through wormholes, but all they have to do is to bend space to allow their their reality, their dimension to to actually bend in with ours and create a bridge there. So, you know, as I said, 
you know, the, the UFO situation, the UFO phenomena is a complex phenomena, and there's not one answer and one quick, simple answer as to visitors from another star system or just visitors from another parallel reality. Uh, I'm sure we're dealing with uh, much more complex things. And a lot of this, and what you talked about, a lot of this is beyond our perception as three-dimensional human beings, so we're only taking pokes at it and guessing at it and uh, because this whoever they are in this phenomenon they're not revealing themselves to us totally they're keeping us in the dark and we're identifying and trying to analyze what we're looking at with our own experiences and uh, that just doesn't work well this is then you go into murky territories where people get uncomfortable so we throw into this salad the word spiritual and when you bring up that word this is where we see the sort of the, the, the clickish aspects of different facets of the paranormal realm where you know if you if you start to okay we, we hit limitations about what we can do as physical beings so now we have to bring up the idea that maybe we are not just material beings maybe we're cue the police spiritual beings in a material world and once you start bringing up this stuff people get uncomfortable the ufo people say oh that's too out there it's and true. of course yeah so yeah it's too out there okay well what are we talking about anyway we're talking about uh, alien creatures and technology we don't understand so what's the definition of out there i mean here phil i'll, I'll put the question to you in a direct way what is your own threshold for sort of delimit, delineating whether something is credible or out there? When, when people talk to you about this stuff, you hear a lot of, I'm guessing a lot of people come to you to tell you about their paranormal experiences. What, what is your personal threshold based on 30-some-odd years of looking at this, where you'll, you'll hear somebody claim something and you'll say, okay, you know what, categorically, that's out there. Yeah, a lot of it is out there. It's pretty far out there. To tell <laughs> right. the truth, I mean, you know. So, what do you do with stuff like this? I mean, there, this person may be having a real experience, right. and to to limit yourself in what you want to believe and not want to believe at this point is wrong. As researchers, we have to consider everything that comes to us. But you know, if you're doing if you're, if, if you're working with a person who's having experiences and it just goes into a dead end on and on and on and on, there's only a certain amount of time that you can spend with this individual. And if nothing is produced, it's a dead end. You just take it for what it is, another dead end and some information that you hope fits into the puzzle in the future. But that seems to be the bulk of the experiences is that most of them go to a certain degree and a certain length and they're dead ends and that's it. So, you know, you have to consider everything, I believe. But. All right. So let's, let's, let's kind of segue into something a little different here. You talk about these, uh, and, and I'm sorry I keep missing these trips up to uh, the magnetic mines. You talk about this area up in the Hudson Valley, this magnetic anomaly just uh, outside of a chamber on Reservoir, Wo R uh, Reservoir Road in southeast Brewster, New York. Okay, right. and, and, and in the book here it says that the anomaly 
is the largest electromagnetic anomaly on the Northeast. And that's on aviation maps so that pilots can know about it so that they can know that it might have an effect on their navigational uh, instruments, right? Yeah. Okay. It's still on FAA maps, and it was charted in the last geophysical year as a large magnetic anomaly. And, and, and you can believe that because, you know, the, the ground, the geology underneath is solid magnetite for like six or 700 feet. All right. So what do we know about the effect of magnetic fields on the human brain? There's been some work done about that, and uh, it seems that magnetic magnetic anomalies, magnetic um, impulses onto the brain, seem to do something with the, the nerve centers firing in the brain and, the, and so on, and the junctions of the nerve centers, and it does affect the way you think. I mean, people who have gone into this area without even telling them there's a magnetic anomaly have physiological effects also. They leave feeling, some of them feeling elated, some of them feeling depressed, and so on. But there's some work being done that electromagnetic fields and magnetic anomaly fields can actually alter human perception. And there's a paper that was written just recently, and somebody gave me the paper, they downloaded it to me. Experiments that are being done where people are subjected to these uh, magnetic fields and having hallucinations, which we, which is, we would consider paranormal. Right. See, that's exactly where I'm leading with this. And, and again, trying to take a rational approach to this, certain <sighs> alarms go off in my mind because, you know, the, the, the human brain, for example, ha generates mag uh, an electromagnetic field. Right. Okay. Um, and in order for you to think properly in the exchange of information and memory, those electro electromagnetic fields have to have a certain polarity. Right. So when these things are messed with, they now mess with human perception. Definitely. I mean, that. okay, so then how do we relate that to the strange experiences people are having in these areas where there are these significant magnetic anomalies? What's causing the issue here? Is it the magnetic field that is changing the perception of the person so that essentially they're, they're hallucinating? Or is it that the magnetic fields create a, some kind of a resonance effect on the brain that facilitates or creates some sort of extrasensory per, uh, perception? Which, which do you think it is? I think it's actually both. But it's not always restricted to one individual. For example, people in that area will see the same thing. So if we're talking about the anomaly is causing people to hallucinate or they want to go down there, let's say, and see something, and uh, so they go in this magnetic field and, uh, and a hallucination is generated for what they want to see, Yes, you can accept that if it's one individual only seeing something, but groups of people go in there and see the same thing. Also, there's phenomena that has been recorded on film and digital down there, spook light sort of phenomena, that would rule out that, you know, it's just all in the brain. But also, yes, going into those areas with some people especially who 
for whatever reason, are sensitive or have a psychic capabilities to a certain degree, the magnetic fields may enhance that part of the brain for allow them to perceive partially or detect a reality that they normally would not. There's a lot of work in this area that needs to be done and trying to do what we can to document this. Uh, and that's really where I'm working, what I'm working at right now. Try to take these areas where there's these intense magnetic anomalies, and of course, you know, doing it in the area of my backyard practically is uh, the thing to do, and documenting the effects it has on people and the phenomena that's reported there. You know what? I might say something here. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Philip Imbrogno. He is author of Interdimensional Universe, brand new book from our friends at Llewellyn. You know, you raise another possibility here, which is maybe we are collectively creating some of this reality. I mean, we don't know what the collective power of the human mind might be, and perhaps we can create images that can be photographed. That's very possible, and you know, the, op the possibilities are endless, like I said. There is a phenomena taking place. If it's inner or outer, no one can say for sure, but it's worth studying. 
and that if everybody continuously goes around if, if looking for spaceships and so on and so on, I mean, you have to be more objective in how you look at this. There are just so many possibilities because we're dealing with something that's totally unknown. Our instruments really can't detect it well. You know, we're, we're dealing with human perception, and I believe all avenues should be looked at and explored and that's the only way that we're going to even get an idea of what's really going on here. You know, it you may know. also be possible here that we're always meant to go to the next level, courtesy of this phenomenon, whatever it is, and that we're never meant to really get the answer. All we are meant to do is get the next level. And so we can keep searching and searching till the end of time and never get the ultimate answer, but each level of perception takes us to a further sense or level of development. And I believe that's pretty important. And But the more we document the phenomena, the better, and the more experiences that people have in these areas and record them, the better. It, it, it's a very, very difficult area to do a scientific study, so to speak. And I believe that the scientific method when we're dealing with especially paranormal phenomena uh, really breaks down because the scientific method was used for physical reality. I will get most of the time from a lot of my peers in the scientific field, well, did you use the scientific method? This is not very scientific. And science does not really apply here sometimes well yeah see the problem is when you say that then of course people go well if science doesn't apply it's useless then it's religion and and by the way for a lot of people involved with this topic this has become in effect their surrogate religion it has i mean and Absolutely. that's sad right i mean so let's just get that out of the way at the same time as someone who's very interested in images when i see certain images I go, hmm, that's interesting. So along those lines, on page 130 of your book, there's a photo of a disc-shaped UFO seen in daylight near Brewster, New York in 1984. There's nothing really about this in the text, Phil. So please tell us about this image because I think it's a really interesting one. Yeah, that was photographed near the anomaly area. And the thing about it is I kept it out of the book because I had permission to use the photograph but not the person's account. All right. Because once again, the person's account is more like uh, a religious experience to them. They were drawn to that area by some type of message to go out into the road and um, with their camera and start taking pictures and this object appeared in the sky and they photographed it. And um, um, that's that, that's about the bulk of it. That's about the you know the information. But the thing is, is that um, this individual, you know, went out to the area and was drawn there uh, because of some type of calling or whatever, some type of contact and and so on and there were a number of people who were with this individual when the object was photographed but once really? again you hit it right you hit the you, you hit the nail right on the head with the hammer when you said that some people are looking at this as a substitute for religion and these particular individuals i believe do so and when you're dealing with something like that 
and you know, people become very strange and very hard to deal with sometimes. A lot of different phenomena photographed, yeah. It was only one photo? That was it? Yeah, that's all. That's all that I've seen. It was on uh, film. And I had actually the originals, um, um, the negatives, and uh, there was only one frame with the UFO. I just want to say something. The reason this, this image really caught my interest, uh, there, there's an episode of the Paracast I talk about having a very intense sighting with my father, my brother, and ultimately my mother and a, and, and a neighbor across the street in Somerset, New Jersey, in, uh, in the early 70s. A UFO that followed us and hovered above my house. And uh, it's th this photo is almost a dead ringer for it. It's almost exactly the picture. And what, the reason I bring this up is there's a little kind of... In this photo, you see the classic disc shape, a dome above, light hitting it from the left-hand side. So there's a, uh, there's a specular highlight on the dome on the left-hand side. There's kind of an interesting little uh, bit of highlight on the lower right side of the disc indicating some sort of a, a separate structure on the bottom. And then there's a, a, a little piece of something hanging off the bottom of this. Right. I mean, in, in this picture, it almost looks like a fin, but I don't think it is. Um, it, it's too, it's too uh, sort of amorphous to completely describe, but th this is almost exactly the disc from my Somerset experience, again, that I've talked about in the show. It's, it's almost a dead ringer. The, the, this is pretty much it. The only difference being that the ship that I saw had some more stuff hanging off the bottom of it. But for the most part, I mean, this is, this is the craft. When I came upon this page in the book and I looked at it and I thought, oh, man, that's interesting. It's an interesting thing, yeah. I mean, it's true that people do photograph what people are seeing. And in this particular case, yes, I mean, it was photographed in one of these anomaly areas people got some type of psychological message or instruction to go out there and take this picture mm -hmm. there was there was something there how authentic it is I can't really say so the source for this are people who only ever came up with this one photo it's not like they've come up with some string of photos they've taken that they received instructions more than a couple of times went out and consistently shot something this is a one-off right this is a one-time experience as far as I know yeah. you know when they go out to this area some of them you know just go out there just for the hell of it uh, every now and then and just park the car out there and sit down there waiting for something to happen and most of them will tell me when they're going out there because I think they want me to join them but that's not exactly my forte but uh, I've been out there a number of times and, and actually seen some things going on there but just to sit there yeah, not really most of the time they don't um, they, they don't experience anything and uh, this particular time they got a message one of them the individuals got a message to go down there and they brought the camera and that's what they produced let me ask you a quick question here what was the strangest thing that ever happened to you Philip I mean, there's been a lot of strange things. If you're involved with this stuff over the years and you're doing as much field research as I have, uh, you're, you're bound to touch the phenomena. I mean, I've seen the Hudson Valley UFO three times. That totally convinced me that UFOs are real. I mean, 
and Contact of the Fifth Kind. I, I think one of the strangest things when I was writing that book is after talking to Dean Fagestrom and hearing about this Denestra and being held on to those diagrams for so many years. He did them back in 1967 and just wrapped them up and put them in his file cabinet and sealed them in there. And here I am out of the blue just visiting this guy, talking to him about his experiences, and he goes into like a trance and he pulls out the diagrams and he said, I've been instructed to give these to you. And of course, I was pretty shocked. Now, about three days later, I did another uh, investigation of a couple in Greenwich, Connecticut, who were channeling ET entities. And they did it by automatic writing. During the session, there was a... Uh, a number, a number of unusual things took place, including temperature of the room dropping and animal reaction and so on. But the communications from these entities that they were communicating with all of a sudden stopped and their hands started going widely on the paper. And then another signature came in with a different writing and said, um, and they said, well, who is this? And it signed in Denestra. And it said, I will speak only to Phil. Hmm. And I said, well, Denestra, what do you want me to do with these diagrams? And it said, in time, you will know. Now, there's no practical way that these uh. people could have known about my contacts with Dean Fagestrom. So that was pretty strange in itself right there. But there have been other other occurrences where I touched on to the paranormal world because, you know, I'm out there poking around and sooner or later, you're going to get brushed with it. All right, hold on. Now, let's just get a timeline here. Uh, this happened before or after you had published Contact of the Fifth Kind? This happened before. Okay. So so they, they really, there was no public documentation saying at that time of your involvement. This was um, before Night Siege, too. I mean, Night Siege was okay. published before Contact of the Fifth Kind. Okay. This was before I published any anything on UFOs. All right, so that that's well. Obviously, that makes this more compelling then. Well, it, it made it very you know. It, it, it was a, another bit of evidence that added to to convince me that Dean Fagestrom was in something in contact other than in contact with something other than his own imagination and in his own inner mind and his own subconscious, right. so to speak. So let, let let's drill down into this for a minute. So these diagrams that uh, Fagerstrom is drawing, what are they of? What are they supposed to be of? They're 32 diagrams. They're in vivid color. They're of devices that are used. Some of them are used in conjunction with each other. Some of them are scientific instruments. And um, some of them are, are, are diagrams of, of the way you cut certain crystals to produce energy. And one of them is actually what he calls the, uh, uh, the treatment of the hydrogen nuclei, which shows in 1967 the hydrogen nuclei being composed of about 20 or, or 15, uh, would have to, I can't give you the exact number right now, smaller elementary particles. So some of the devices, one of them is called a high-flux resonator. It's a device where if you turn it on, it neutralizes electrical flow. And Fagerstrom said he got the idea that these devices are used by these ETs when they visit people uh, to paralyze them. 
and not hurt them, but just totally paralyze them. And there's another device called a, uh, a photon accelerator, which is primarily used to accelerate, I guess, leptons or, or photonic particles to higher frequencies. There's another device that's sort of like a telescope. And there's another device um, that's a communication device, complete with um, antenna construction and, and so on. And there's another device that looks like it's, it's some type of a reactor that from what has been figured out by a number of people, it's some type of element that uses cold fusion. By, and it's really bizarre because it's talking about getting elementary matter like hydrogen atoms and bombarding them with subatomic particles causing fusion to take place without great heat and great temperature. Of course, once again, this device is interesting and it has interested a lot of different people in technical, scientific fields, engineering fields, but there's not enough detail and, and information on there to build such a device. What are the metals made out of? Every once in a while on the diagrams, there'll be a diagram saying that it's a beryllium magnesium compound, which is practically impossible. You can make alloys, but how do you make a compound of beryllium and magnesium or carbon beryllium compounds, which is possible, but would be very difficult to form on planet Earth. So you have things like this, but the diagrams are so intricate and he said that he went into a room in his home back in 1967, had this graph paper and saw blue dots appear on the graph paper and played connecting the lines. And uh, Dean's wife was alive at that time and she really didn't take into this quite well. Uh, she, and she verified you know, some of the strange things that he was doing and she was very worried about it. She ended up passing, dying from a, a brain hemorrhage not too mm. long after he started talking to me. Mm. Um, so oh the guy's a mystery. I mean, the things that he, he has produced more stuff also. Uh, for example, music. He never took a piano lesson in his life, yet he claims that Denestra, this oh. other being called Afax, channels music through him and he goes into this trance. I saw him do it and he claims that they're channeling the music of Franz Liszt through him. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey, this is Jeff Richman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on The Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. 
Philip Imbrogno joining us, author of Interdimensional Universe, The New Science of UFOs, Paranormal Phenomena, and Other Dimensional Beings, published by Llewellyn. And you raise a bigger question here. Why is it that only, it seems, a small number of people around the world, not all of whom have any connection to science or anything else, but seem at random to be selected for the honor, if you can call it that, of getting this kind of communication? I don't know the answer to that, and maybe these people are more susceptible to have, let's say, their brains reorganized. Maybe it's a genetic thing. I don't know the answer to that, but it's true. If you're going to channel scientific diagrams through an individual into our world, you would want to pick somebody like a Phil Morrison from MIT or someone like that or Jesse uh, Greenstein or, or something like that. Why pick a night watchman, Dean Fagastrom? And I don't know the answer to that, but it may be due to their own physiological makeup. Or it's somebody they can mess with it and just get away with it. I don't know. Well, see, that that's an interesting question. But, Phil, you, you said something a moment ago, and it really grabbed me by the yaya, as the kids say. That here's David's yaya's grab. We're in trouble yeah. now. Oh, sure. Oh, don't you? If only you knew. Get your yaya's so, out. So, well, no, but here's the thing. Here he is. I, I brought up the autistic savants before, a specific example, channeling music. And here we got a guy who, now you're telling us, is channeling music, except it's music in the style of, of Liszt. So now, yeah. well, see, I don't know. Maybe there's a clue there. Now, first question. Is there anywhere I can hear this music? I have tapes here, yes. Okay. I, I would love to, love, 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 love to hear this music. And I'm going to guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but this would be unreleased Franz Liszt music? Yeah, what happened is that when I was over Dean's house and he was telling me what he was doing, this was back in 1995. Dean is in a nursing home right now, by the way. And okay. before he, he was admitted to the nursing home, he was called me up and said, you know, I can't take it anymore. He said, they're they keep on coming at me and they're programming, they want me to do all this stuff and they're burning me out. And he's sort of like burned out his brain from all of this. Hmm. So I went over to his house and get side backtrack a little bit and he said that he's producing music and he showed me like about 50 tapes or so and he played them on a cassette recorder and I said, well Dean, you know, I know you and I'm not going to insult you but person would say that you take this from somewhere else. Dean was practically, he was very poor. I mean, his house was falling apart, he couldn't pay his taxes. Yeah, in his living room was a piano hooked up, an electric piano, really nice one, hooked up through a, to a tape deck. And he said that, you know, when it, they want me to play, I, I don't know when it's going to happen. I sit down and I have to put on the recorder and play. So I said, Dean, how did you afford this? Like, yeah. You're going to love this. And he said, they let me win the lottery when I need things. So what? Get this. He picks numbers through a mathematical formula but can only win something that they want him when they want him to get something. They don't care about if this guy's starving. They don't care if his house is falling apart. But if they want him to produce music, they'll let him get money to buy a piano. So I went to the place where he was buying his lottery ticket. And the fellow there 
who I knew, by the way, because I used to go to that store quite a bit. And I said, do you know a fellow by the name of Dean Fagerstrom? And he cuts away and says, yeah, the guy is weird. He comes in here and he picks numbers and he wins the lottery for certain amounts. Too much. He says he's really weird. So getting back to the piano thing, I said, well, Dean, you know, and I went over to the piano and made sure it wasn't one of those automatic things that you plug in and a program and stuff. And it was a regular piano that was kind of like electric. It looked like a standard piano, but it was electric. All of a sudden, he brushes me out of the way and sits down and starts playing this amazing piece. And now. he's playing for about 10 minutes. All right. And then he stops, and I said, Dean, what did you just do? And he says, I don't know. I, I can fi This is why I hate what I do, because I can't duplicate what I've done. The, the guy had no experience playing keyboards? Nothing. And I, I, you know, I've known him since 1982. You know, I've done really a lot of work and, and, and background on this guy. I assume he was told why he was given this information? Yes. And why? Okay. Sure. Um, they said, Denestra and another being called AFAX, said to him that now they're going to use him to channel music, and Franz Liszt is going to do channeling through him, and because the music is meant to open up people and the way they look at things. Now, but, and it's supposed to increase your, when you listen to it according to what he said, it's supposed to do something inside your brain to increase your awareness um, spiritually or something like that. But the thing is, is this, is that I gave one of the tapes to a friend of mine in Greenwich who um, knew somebody at the Juilliard School of Music. And he calls him up and he said, um, I have this tape here that was played by somebody. Can you tell me um, what style is it? So he plays the tape and after about five seconds, Burton says, stop the tape, it's Liszt. And he said, and he plays him the uh, entire piece. And he says, it's Liszt, he said, but it's, it's, it's a piece I've never heard before. So that interests me right there. I spoke at the, um, the 40 in Societies meeting down in Maryland uh, a number of years ago, and I presented part of Dean Fagestrom's case and some of his material, and I played the music there. And there were some people in the audience who had an emotional response to it. All right. Two people um, even cried. I mean, okay. you know, so the music seems to have an effect on people not all people i think but you know that's inclusive the effect it has but the thing is is that this guy's obviously he doesn't like to be considered a channeler but he has produced this material and so, still there's no explanation fully as to how he does it all right question for you you have these on what format standard audio cassettes they're on standard audio cassettes, yeah. Okay. I have actually two tapes in the front and back. Okay. Have you considered transferring these things over digitally so that we can hear yeah, them? As a matter of fact, I have, but I'm not exactly sure how to do it. All right. I am totally equipped to do this with the highest possible quality you can get out of them. And on the air now, I'm offering you 
my time, my technology, I've got the best conversion box available. I have a very high quality audio cassette deck that I've kept running for. It's it, this deck is actually I bought it in '91, so it's 17 years old. This deck and it's a great Akai deck. Well, you convinced uh, me. I am offering to convert okay. all of you because I'm dying to hear this. I want to okay. hear the music. Why don't I do this? I have two cassettes. Why don't I send you one for now? You got it. And I'll I'll send it in the mail. All right. Uh, just email me your address. Will do. And uh, you could take it from there. Just mail back the cassette when you're done with it. Absolutely, you and got you, it. You, I, and you I can send me a file that's you know a, a CD with it with it on digital. I absolutely will. You got well, a deal. No, I have an open. You know, I'm always looking for some type of to further this research. You know, to, yeah. to do more with this stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I'll take you up on your offer. Just email me your address to ship it, and I'll ship it tomorrow. You got it. All right. Excellent. Um, because, you know, look, there are certain things, you know, as we, we sort of wade through this cesspool, and it is a cesspool, This a lot of this stuff. I mean, the best-known UFO cases that have extreme claims that people keep bringing back up and beating over the head, you know, there are many of us who are just tired of, of this garbage. And we're looking for some kind of clues. And... Look, it's obvious to me, at least, that there's a good possibility we are never going to understand this. And I've come to some sense of, of resignation internally about this, just the idea that, you know what, again, maybe the nature of whatever this is is that it doesn't want us to know what, is, what it is. And at the same time, though, like many other people, I know that personally I have had experiences that tell me that there's something that's going on, and the range of experiences I've had also tells me that it's not an accident that I personally am having these experiences. There's too much stuff I've seen. And by the way, you know, uh, Phil, there have been now a couple of field trips that our buddy Jeremy Vaney has made with you going up right. to these places that I have missed. One time I just got lost. That's a whole other story. But um, next time you guys go out, I mean, I'm, I'm really curious to come along and see w what's going on. Because, yeah, it's obvious there's something going on. But the two questions are, can we get any kind of an objective read on it? And even if we could, would we know what to do with it? Those are the things that, that drive me personally and keep me interested in doing shows like, you know, the Paracast with Gene and talking to people like you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we'll get any answers. I don't know if I'll personally get any, any answers. But uh, I just want you to know, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I think, Gene, I'll speak for Gene. I think we both appreciate what you're doing. You know, uh, will we ever understand this? I don't know. Maybe not. But all I'll say about the book, by the way, is that it's, it's an interesting book. I almost wish you'd had more material on some of the physics behind quantum mechanics and string well, theory and embryo yeah, theory. Yeah, I wanted to do that, but, you know, Lou Ellen is the publisher, and they didn't want to make yeah. it too cerebral. So I made those chapters as short as possible. You have to remember, you know, the type of publisher Lou Ellen is, they're not exactly, you know, into publishing, you know, books on string theory and quantum mechanics. Well, you know what? That's unfortunate because uh, we live in a dumbed-down enough time in history, here we've got all this technology, all of this understanding, and yet we're trying to dumb things down. I, I, I find it personally highly frustrating. Before we and, get too frustrated, Phil, yeah. we only have a couple of minutes left. Give our listeners a huge plug for your book. Well, 
you know, my book is available in the bookstores and on Amazon, of course, Interdimensional Universe, and it, it deals primarily with uh, my involvement in investigations into paranormal phenomena and trying to relate them to UFOs. If you've read Night Siege and Contact of the Fifth Kind, this is sort of like a third in the series of my research, and, you know, I tried my best to just approach the phenomena as clearly as you possibly can, but that's not a very easy thing to do. <laughs> so, you know, pick up the book and read it and, you know, send me your emails on how much you hated it or liked it. It doesn't bother me. <laughs> um, I can be reached at Bell1313, that's Bell with one L, at yahoo.com and I'm still collecting information so send me your experiences I'd love to read them and contact you nice. do you have a website? no, don't do websites oh that's unfortunate <laughs> you are missing out on one part of reality that produces. yeah that's what everybody tells me but you know I've seen a lot of websites and people pushing products and you know. I'll tell you what, though, if you have the time, you're welcome to participate in a message forum. So I'll even give you your own thread, your own forum area where you can talk to people. You could ask questions and exchange information. I'll be happy to do well, that. That's a possibility. Okay. Well, you know what? It's available, and I'll let you know off the air how we can do it. Philip Imbrogno is author, ladies and gentlemen, of Interdimensional Universe, the new science of UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and other dimensional beings trying to maybe try to find some kind of connecting link amongst all that stuff from Llewellyn Worldwide Publishing. Phil, thanks for joining us on the Powercast. It's a pleasure as usual. Thank you, Phil. The Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.